Welcome both to those here in person and those joining us via the internet. My name is Ed Newell. I'm the Chief Executive of Cumberland Lodge. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Lodge, we're a charity that convenes conferences, panel debates and retreats on pressing societal issues. We incubate fresh ideas that promote progress towards more peaceful, open and inclusive societies. And we actively involve young people in all that we do and bring an ethical dimension to the discussions that we convene. We're pleased to stream this evening's event live to bring it to a much wider audience than previously possible. And we'll be doing this on a regular basis from now on. And we're also about to launch a monthly webinar series called Dialogue and Debate. We'll be in touch about this soon by social media. So if you're not on our contact list and want to take part, please do go to the Keep In Touch page on our website. It's now a great pleasure to hand over to our chair for this evening's discussion, Jessica Simon. Thank you. to the seminar on defending democracy, checks and balances under the rule of law. Uh, it's obviously a very timely moment to be discussing this issue. Um, we've had the Supreme Court decision in the second Miller case, and we also have uh, potential impeachment proceedings in the United States. And to reflect those uh, major um, uh, developments, we have two uh, perfectly placed speakers to talk and discuss tonight. First of all, um, I'm going to introduce you to Neil Katyal, who's a partner at Hogan Lovells. He was acting uh, Attorney General under President Obama, uh, and he has his own show on NBC and is rushing back to film it later tonight. And I understand that on a bad night, it has 1.9 million viewers. <laughs> so you're very privileged to be in the same room as him. But most excitingly, he played himself in House of Cards. <laughs> and um, he's going to talk to us uh, about the uh, American situation and some of the litigation that he's been involved in. Uh, and then on my left, I have David Anderson, QC, from Brickcourt Chambers. He's a specialist in EU law and constitutional law. He was the terror watchdog, um, and uh, he is a crossbencher in the House of Lords, but perhaps better, better explained, he is actually a so-called people's peer. So he is a true representative of the people, and we may hear more about <coughs> the people later on this evening. So the program this evening is we'll have about 15 minutes from each speaker, uh, then we'll have a little discussion perhaps between us uh, before opening out uh, to all of you to open the discussion up. And I think there'll be, there'll be a lot of interesting discussion. And we aim to end at around half past seven. Okay, so first of all, thank you for having me here. I've heard about Cumberland Lodge for a long period of time. My friend JP Romaswamy uh, has been uh, basically bending my ear about it. So it's a real delight to actually be here in person and to see this magnificent set of surroundings and to be here with both of you. Um, I'm humbled. Um, what I thought I would do, uh, there's so much we could talk about uh, under this topic. I wanted to start by just focusing my remarks on the judicial system and talk about the United States. And obviously, you've had this momentous ruling last week. 
Um, and I thought it would be a nice way to think about one aspect of defending democracy and policing the rule of law, which is the role of the courts. Um, and I'll do this just basically because it, you know, it's six o'clock and people are tired. I'm going to do this with two stories and use those stories to illustrate broader points. And they're just the two cases I argued. My very first Supreme Court case was about Guantanamo. So I was teaching at Yale at the time. And this was a couple months after the nation had been horrifically attacked. And at the bottom of the CNN uh, screen, it moved, the news had all moved to those ticker things. So it had the news uh, crawling at the bottom. And it said, President issues military trial order for suspected terrorists at Guantanamo Bay. And I thought to myself, huh, that's interesting. When I was in the Clinton administration, I was national security advisor at the Justice Department, and we had the embassy bombings. And we looked into, could you have military trials? And we said, no, it's obviously unconstitutional. So I was wondering, how did they do this? So this was 2001. I got on my dial-up modem, typed in whitehouse.gov, and, um, and I saw the president's military order. And honestly, my first reaction was I thought it was a joke. I thought it was like on the spoof White House website, like The Onion or something like that. Um, because the president was saying, I can set up a trial system from scratch. I can handpick the prosecutors, handpick the defense attorneys, uh, handpick uh, the defendants who will be before it, write all of the rules for the trial, define the punishments, which he said include the death penalty, define the rights criminal defendants had, which he later said is zero constitutional rights at Guantanamo, handpick the judges, handpick the appeals judges, and the very last lines of the president's executive order said, the federal courts have no business reviewing what I'm doing, no writ of habeas corpus. Now, I'm a big believer in presidential power, but I read that and I said, that can't possibly be right. Now, I was just a law professor, so what did I do? I wrote, I wrote a law review article. I wrote it with Larry Tribe, a very famous academic in America, but literally nobody read it. I, I don't even think I read it. Um, <laughs> um, then I testified in the Senate, hoping that that would do something. Again, nobody cared. These Guantanamo tribunals kept going on. And then I realized I have one other tool in my toolkit. I am a lawyer. I could file a case. So I snuck a letter down to Guantanamo by, with a military attorney authorizing me to bring a lawsuit. Um, and um, I, the letter wound up in the hands of bin Laden's driver. Um, and so, you know, and up until this point, I was on a national security career path and going to be like the White House National Security Advisor. And then I look at that, I'm like, huh, I'm going to represent Bin Laden's driver. Um, and I thought to myself and said, well, actually, what a privilege it is to do that. And so we filed the case. Um, I argued the case in the trial court. I won. I've been trying to go down to Guantanamo to meet Mr. Hamdan for a long time, this driver. And the, pe the Pentagon and the Justice Department kept saying, I didn't have the security clearances. And I said, look, at, look me up. I got more security clearances than you heard of. I used to sit on the covert action committee and stuff. And they're like, oh, yes, OK, you do, but you don't have need to know. You don't have the need to actually meet your client. And I thought to myself, and I said, well, you know, I'm deferential to the government. I said, well, that's kind of true. I make these legal arguments and so on. And then I said, no, no, wait a minute. This is his case. I'm not acting as a law professor. He should be, I'm acting as a lawyer. He should get to meet his lawyer. So I asked for it in writing from the Justice Department. And then they let me go to Guantanamo because they knew I was going to give it to the New York Times. 
And uh, you know, the role of the media in all this and defending democracy, I think, is incredibly important. Um, and I'm almost done with this first story, um, and then I'll move to the second. But I went down to Guantanamo after 10 months of trying to see him. And he looks at me. He kicks everyone else out of the room. I had some students and other lawyers with me. And he says, I want to talk to you. And I said, OK. And I think he's going to yell at me. And um, you know, he'd been in solitary confinement for 10 months. And instead, he, um, he looks at me and says, I just have one question for you. Why are you doing this? Why are you defending me? Your last client was Al Gore. What are you doing? And I said to him, well, actually, I paused for a long time. I paused for like a half minute because I hadn't taken that step back in a while. I'd argued his case and knew all the line-by-line -line argument. But I hadn't taken that step back to say, why am I doing this? So like a half a minute goes by in my head, and I'm like, oh, no, I should not be a lawyer. I should be a law professor. I mean, a terrible lawyer. Guy asks you a simple question, you can't answer it. And then like another five seconds goes by in my head, and I think, well, maybe it's OK. Justice Ginsburg. When you ask her a question, she'll pause for as long as a minute before answering it. So maybe I'm OK. And then another few seconds goes by in my head, and I think, well, that doesn't matter. He doesn't know who the hell Justice Ginsburg is. Um, but then I said this. And I said, look, I'm doing this because of one simple thing. My parents came to America from India, from another country, because they could land on its shores and be treated fairly. Not perfectly, but fairly and better than most any other nation on Earth. And that had always been my experience. But after the 9-11 attacks, President Bush did something that no president had ever done in our 200-plus year history, which is he said, I'm going to set up a separate set of justice for the 7 billion foreigners and the 12 million green card holders, residents in America who have citizenship from some other country, like my parents. He said, for those folks, you could be accused of a simple crime, but you got sent to Guantanamo. But if you're an American citizen, you get a whole different system of justice, the Cadillac version of justice. And I said, we've just never done that. And so I argued that first case in the Supreme Court. I was nervous as all heck, but I argued against the Solicitor General. It was his 35th argument. But we won. And what I said to the cameras on the steps afterward, and this concludes the first story, is this. I said, here's what happened on this day. You had the lowest of the low, this guy, Salim Hamdan, bin Laden's driver accused of conspiring with the world's most evil man. And he brings this case not just against anyone, but the world's most powerful man, the President of the United States. And he brings it not just in some rinky-dink traffic court, but in the highest court of the land, the Supreme Court of the United States. And he wins. That's something remarkable about American democracy. In many other countries, this driver would have been shot for bringing his case. And more to the point for me, his lawyer would have been shot. But that's something that makes America truly special, dedication to the rule of law and judicial enforcement of it. And then we move to the second story, very recent. President Trump campaigned on a Muslim ban. On December 7, 2015, he said, quote, I, Donald J. Trump, are calling for a complete and total shutdown of all Muslim immigration to the United States. And um, he became president. Six days later, he issued this surprise order on a Friday night to ban Muslim immigration, basically, from seven countries that were between 90.9% and 99.99% Muslim. And the, there were scenes at the airports. I'm sure many of you saw them on television and the like. And we filed a lawsuit to stop it right away. And that lawsuit, uh, there were a bunch of lawsuits filed. They were successful. 
and the courts say, no, you can't do this. It's discrimination on the basis of religion. The president says, oh, these are so-called judges. <coughs> They're fake judges. They're not to be trusted. I will see you in court. We're going to bring this to the Court of Appeals. But then he flinched and didn't bring it. And instead, he pulled back that travel ban, and he had issued a new travel ban, travel ban two. Travel ban two was like travel ban one, except it added the country of Chad, which I think the president thought was some guy. Um, but, uh, and we went right into court. I argued it right away. We got it enjoined, stopped, um, again, religious discrimination and, and the like. And then the president said the same stuff. So-called judge, see you in court. These are fake judges. And we were prepared to go to the, we went to the Court of Appeals. I argued it. We won. We then went to the Supreme Court. Um, and two weeks before the Supreme Court oral argument, I was preparing for it, he flinched again and pulled it back. And then he had travel ban three. Travel ban three was different than travel bans one and two. And in particular, it included the country of North Korea. Because you, I know we're in England, so you might not know this, but in America we have an overwhelming immigration problem with North Korea. Um, and uh, it also included 100 people from Venezuela, um, people who never wanted to come to the United States in the first place. But it allowed the president's lawyers to say with a straight face, oh, we're not religiously discriminating. We include North Koreans. We include um, Venezuelans, too, not just Muslim countries. And they said the text of the order, the face of the order, doesn't have anything discriminatory in it. And you can see the analogy to what uh, Prime Minister Johnson did. Well, the text of the order doesn't itself reveal the kind of illicit motives. If you just read the text of what he decided to do in terms of suspending parliament. So that's what the argument was. The Solicitor General for Trump said that to the Supreme Court. And I said in response, I thought I had the killer argument. I said. You can't just look to the text of something because there's a meaning behind it. I said, if the president on Monday says, I hate Jews, and on Tuesday bans immigration from Israel, on Wednesday, I don't think you get to say, well, it doesn't say Jewish folks in it, it just says Israel. We know it to be discrimination. But nonetheless, the Supreme Court, in a five to four decision, sustained that. And you know, I think that your decision last week is remarkably interesting because it's, I think for a long period of time, we thought of the American Supreme Court as the most muscular of the judicial systems with the entrenched power of judicial review going back at least to 1803 and the like. Um, but, and we'll be talking about this more um, in the minutes to come. It's not clear to me that that's true anymore about our Supreme Court. And indeed, you know, it's a hard hypothetical, but if we were to ask if something like the case you had last week came to the United States Supreme Court, would they have felt comfortable uh, intervening or rendering that decision and making it justiciable? And I think the answer to that very well may be no. So that's something we'll talk about um, in, in, the, uh, in the hour to come. Well, thank you very much, Neil. That was wonderful. I'm a huge admirer of the American Constitution. I started life as a, a lawyer in Washington, DC. I still have pictures of the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial uh, up on my wall. Um, but I thought I might start by um, thinking of some of the ways in which our constitutional arrangements here are different um, from those in the US, and then looking at how those arrangements have been tested over the three or four years, and maybe come back to a more general discussion about uh, constitutions, a written constitution, is it maybe time to, to write ours down? And two things I could think of that are obviously different between uh, the US and the UK 
is first of all that here the executive is permanently dependent on the legislature for its continuation in office. So it's not just a question of avoiding impeachment, and maybe we'll manage to tempt Neil onto the subject of uh, impeachment uh, later today. It's about uh, retaining the confidence of the legislature uh, if you want to stay in office, uh, needing that confidence every day. And then the second point, turning to the courts, is that of course uh, they have a Supreme Court that can overturn legislation and we do not. So together, it seems to me, uh, those features, those differences, accentuate the importance of our representative democracy as exemplified by Parliament. Parliament can bring about the fall of the administration at pretty much any time. And Parliament, uh, uh, and sorry, the, yes, Parliament can legislate uh, without fear of being overturned by uh, the courts. Now, uh, both those propositions would have to be nuanced slightly. I in particular, when you're looking at the, the power of the courts, uh, they do, of course, have the power to declare that a statute, an act of parliament, is incompatible uh, with human rights as declared in the European Convention. Uh, over the last 45 years, um, they have even had the power in their capacity as courts of EU law to say that statutes are incompatible with the law of the EU, but that I assume we're going to uh, lose uh, as and when we uh, leave the EU. So the uh, general point uh, stands. Uh, but the uh, power uh, of uh, Parliament is itself uh, limited by uh, indirect uh, judicial control uh, of the kind that I've suggested, um, and it's also limited by governmental control of the order paper. Government on the whole gets to decide uh, what is debated in Parliament, or at any rate, what is debated with any prospect of it becoming uh, legislation. And those, if you like, are the sort of the expansion joints in the system. In our rather curious unwritten constitution, those are the features uh, that mean that although Parliament is, is sovereign, um, there are nonetheless uh, checks and balances of a kind. Well, how has our system been tested uh, over the past three or four years? I want to look at three uh, aspects of that, and it won't surprise you to hear uh, that the first is um, the referendum. And by the, uh, the referendum, um, we uh, found ourselves with an extraordinary dilemma, the difficulty in reconciling the popular vote with the traditions of our representative uh, democracy. Just remember what that uh, referendum uh, looked like. Uh, there was no requirement for a supermajority uh, or a majority of, uh, of, of those uh, eligible to vote, as there was in our 1970s uh, devolution referendums. There was no provision for a second referendum to confirm the result of the first, as I believe the Italian constitution provides when they have referendums uh, of, of this kind. There was no detailed prospectus required, no detailed description of what the change option represented. Contrast the Scottish independence referendum where the people who wanted independence set out their uh, precise goals in a lengthy document. And uh, most significantly of all, in my view, um, there was no parliamentary consent for the change that was being contemplated. And that seems to me the key. The University College London Constitution Unit set up a commission on referendums, uh, which reported back in October 2017. And one observation they made, which really struck home with me, is that if you look at countries whose constitutions provide for uh, constitutional change to be endorsed by a referendum, pretty much all of them require that change to have been endorsed, first of all, by the legislature. 
So in our system, Parliament might have decided, yes, we want to leave the EU, but it's such an important decision. It goes to a referendum as well. But the role of the people is either to endorse Parliament's decision and make it legitimate, or to place a block on what Parliament had decided. We didn't do it that way. Maybe we're constitutionally illiterate. Maybe uh, the members of Parliament who passed that referendum bill, and I can fortunately exempt myself because I only joined fairly recently, um, ha hadn't an anticipated the full consequences. Um, but that, it seems to me, is a, a desirable principle, and I'm very sorry that we uh, haven't had it so far. Maybe if we do write things down, it's something to think about. The second uh, topic I want to talk about over the last four years is the divergence of the main parties from the centre. I've never been sure about um, whether we should go to a system of proportional representation. I have always rather liked the argument of the philosopher Karl Popper, who defended a two-party system on the basis that its inherent tendency was for both parties to converge on the centre, where the votes are, and also for both parties to take a grown-up series of positions on a whole range of interlocking issues. So instead of having people who were very keen on saving the planet and people who were very keen on stopping immigration and various other single-issue type uh, arrangements, uh, you would have two big responsible parties. And this actually seems to me a similarity between the UK and the US. We're both rather unusual in this respect, having uh, traditionally had uh, two uh, main uh, parties. But um, that doesn't seem to have worked too well either in uh, the last um, three or four years. Uh, perhaps because both parties have changed their systems for electing a leader so as to give a decisive role to the membership. And while it may be that uh, other things being equal, a party will need to attract voters in the middle, one cannot expect its members to come from the middle, and the members are likely to be people of particular enthusiasm uh, and a particularly strong point of view. Um, and uh, so that is perhaps uh, one explanation for the fact that contrary to Popper's law, uh, we have seen in recent years our political parties not converging on the centre ground, but rather diverging, each of them, uh, towards the extremes with uh, well-known uh, consequences. Now, why that is, I don't know. Is it an inherent fault of the uh, two-party system? Uh, or, or is it something in the, the Atlantic air? Uh, or is it part of, uh, part of some broader-based uh, global phenomenon, echo chambers, social media, um, or all the rest of it? I'll leave that for you to uh, discuss. Then the third uh, tendency that I want to mention that we've seen over the last few years, uh, and particularly this year, has been the increased assertiveness of the executive parliament and the courts. Uh, Peter Hennessy, who's a very distinguished uh, political scientist and a member of the House of Lords, has written about what he calls the good chaps theory of government. Uh, the basis that you don't need to write too many rules down because at the end of the day we are all decent people who are going to uh, not push things too far and um, approach our respective roles with wisdom and restraint. Um, but again, I don't think it needs me to tell you uh, that this has not uh, universally been uh, the case uh, recently. And to take uh, the very uh, recent example of the prorogation that Neil alluded to, uh, we've really seen all three of the main branches of the state uh, reaching further than perhaps uh, they might have done in the past. So you had uh, a decision, initial decision, to prorogue Parliament for five weeks without, as the courts found, any obvious uh, justification uh, for doing so. Um, and that was, uh, whether it was lawful or not, and it turned out to be unlawful, it was certainly pushing the conventions uh, further than they've been pushed in recent times. 
But then you had Parliament in response uh, pushing things itself. So seizing control of the order paper, uh, seeking to pass uh, legislation in order to frustrate what they knew um, the government uh, wished to do, and inventing or trying to uh, uh, try out at least uh, novel procedures for um, stopping filibusters and so on uh, in order that they could, uh, could have their way. And then finally, you have the judgment of the Supreme Court, uh, which accepted uh, that these questions, although obviously arising in a highly political context, were nonetheless justiciable. And it was very interesting to hear Neil uh, suggest that in that respect, perhaps our Supreme Court was more muscular even than the US Supreme Court. You know, we're all used to uh, thinking that uh, the US Supreme Court uh, is far more willing to get into uh, highly contested political areas than our courts have been. Um, Rowan Wade, very obvious uh, decision, or Brown, the case you mentioned, uh, on education. Um, and yet here we have a case in which the Supreme Court was, uh, was wading right in to the center of the machinery of government and saying that the executive um, was wrong and that it had gone too far by infringing on the principle of, first of all, parliamentary sovereignty, and secondly, the principle that uh, ministers must be accountable to parliament, something that's not very easy to achieve when uh, parliament has been uh, suspended. So in other words, a constitutional system which has functioned I would say with notable, not, it, not unvarying, but notable smoothness uh, since the 17th century, absorbing all kinds of changes, is being stress-tested. And it seems to me a consequence of the judgment we had last week and a consequence of the way that the executive and parliament are behaving, uh, that the court is likely to be called upon more, the courts will be called upon more uh, to patrol the boundaries uh, between the powers of the executive um, and the legislature, and in doing so, will have to address questions of their own uh, <coughs> jurisdiction as well. Of course, there will always be uh, tensions, and there always have been. I looked up the history of the 1611 case of proclamations, which was one of the cases uh, heavily relied upon in the recent Supreme Court judgment, in which Chief Justice Cook defied um, the will of the king in circumstances that were very uh, controversial then and um, struck down uh, actions um, purportedly taken under the royal prerogative. Um, we know something about the sequel to that case because the historian Theodore Plucknett uh, described what happened when uh, the king next met the Lord Chief Justice. And you might think about recent headlines in, uh, in, in some of our newspapers if, you, if, 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 if this rings any bells. His Majesty, he wrote, looking and speaking fiercely with bended fist, offering to strike him which the Lord Cook, perceiving, fell flat on all fours. Well, fortunately, our judges are made of stronger stuff. They don't fall flat on all fours, even when they're described as enemies of the people. Uh, but passions are always going to run high on, in, in those sorts of cases. Well, what about a written constitution? The case for it is obvious to many people, not just tidy-minded lawyers like me who think it's good to write things down and organize them uh, so you know where they are, there's a case for popular participation in deciding the rules by which we're governed, really involving uh, communities, giving people a sense that they've had some say in the result. There's a case for, for clarity. Uh, there's a case for coherence. Uh, there's a case, a case for public confidence that the, 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 the basic rules that govern us have been properly arrived at uh, and are written down in circumstances where everybody knows uh, where, where they are. Um, but lawyers um, often assume um, that there's another good reason for a written constitution, 
which is that a written constitution gives enhanced uh, powers to courts, particularly where individual rights are concerned. Well, certainly courts must be the arbiter of the constitutional rules. If one has a constitution, one must have a constitutional court of some kind. But perhaps it doesn't follow uh, that the court must also have the power, as in the US, to override the legislature, even in support of um, fundamental rights. Some of you might know the work of Jeff King. He's a professor of constitutional law at University College London. He gave an inaugural lecture last year, uh, which was uh, published this year. He's in favor of a written constitution for the sort of reasons I've given. Uh, but he dismisses what he calls the rights-based argument. And he does so on, on rather pragmatic grounds. And he cites a Freedom House report of 2018, uh, concluding that of the 10 countries in the world with the best protections for civil and political rights, seven of them have no strong judicial review of statute, so no power in their courts to override what the legislature has said. And he's looking at places like the Netherlands, um, the Nordic countries, Canada, New Zealand, uh, when, he, when he says that. The World Justice Project um, did a similar exercise. They found nine of the top 13 didn't have strong judicial review of statutes. So it's perhaps a, a point to debate, and that's why we're here. The other point about constitutions, um, People like me think about the US Constitution. Uh, they revere the US Constitution. I think it is widely revered in the US. Uh, but that's not the case anywhere, uh, or not the case everywhere, I should say. The Constitution Unit, again, uh, has done studies of this. They found plenty of advanced uh, Western countries where um, constitutions are not widely known or, or widely loved. And indeed, many of them don't last very long. The average duration of a constitution is 17 years. Um, and if you look at the, even the OECD countries, where constitutions seem to last longest, the average duration of a constitution uh, is uh, only uh, 32 years. Then the other thing about written constitutions is they don't always decide things. I tend to think for us, in our terrible current mess, uh, it's easy to look at a constitution and, and think, well, if only we wrote it down, think of all the wonderful things we could achieve. It becomes a blank sheet of paper on which we can write our dreams and our aspirations uh, for how the world should be. But Robert Hazel did a very interesting recent study into um, monarchy, the role of monarchy in the constitutions of Europe's monarchies. So he looked at Netherlands, Brussels, uh, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Spain, Portugal, Norway, Denmark, Sweden. Um, and he thought, well, perhaps they've got answers to some of these questions that perplex us, like when should the Queen send for this person rather than that person to be a Prime Minister and, and all the rest of it. And he found no enlightenment at all in any of them. They all just say things like, the monarch shall appoint the Prime Minister. And the rest is precedent, it's convention, uh, maybe it's case law, it's the writings of professors. Not so very different um, from uh, how it is here. And in a sense, that's not too surprising. When you think about how constitutions are, are classically made and adopted, you wouldn't expect them just to go through by a majority of members of parliament or even necessarily a, ma a majority of the people expressing their view in a referendum. Very often you need a higher degree of consensus than that. You need the consensus of lots of parts of the federal state or you need a supermajority of the people or in parliament. So it almost stands to reason that anything uh, massively controversial uh, is not going to be determined in the constitution. You're going to end up with words uh, that need to be interpreted. And of course, sometimes when you write things down, you don't help. I mean, one bit of our current constitution um, that I think is written down, uh, but is not at the moment covering itself with glory, is the Fixed Term Parliaments Act 2011, 
or you could say that was passed perhaps too quickly and, and it wasn't subject to any sort of supermajority, but it certainly is a demonstration that writing things down uh, doesn't necessarily uh, make them um, uh, easier. Then the final point I'd make is that a constitution really requires a constitutional moment. Now, it was our great kindness to the United States to give them a constitutional moment. I guess it started about uh, 1770s, I think probably sealed at Yorktown in, in 1783. And, and so they had a very, um, a very uh, satisfactory basis on which to start again with a fresh slate and really to work out what they needed. Now, maybe Brexit will turn out to be our constitutional moment. It's a nice thought. I'm afraid I don't think we're quite there yet. Whatever happens on Brexit, I don't think I'm afraid it's going to solve the devolution or, or the uh, independence uh, issue. Uh, some people are going to come along with a draft constitution that begins with four nations pooling their sovereignty in a, in a federal state. Well, I think you're going to get a pretty dusty answer from many in Scotland and Northern Ireland uh, when it comes uh, to that. So the conclusion I draw from this, uh, are we in a political crisis? Yes. Are we in a constitutional crisis? Well, we're certainly seeing our constitution tested to the point where it's clear that parts of it need to be improved. Uh, but I suspect what we're going to find ourselves doing, rather than starting again, uh, is uh, uh, taking the bits of it uh, that are uh, particularly not functioning well and trying to put those right. I hasten to add, I don't know whether Baroness Prashar would agree, uh, my, my fellow peer, uh, but the wonderful House of Lords in which we both sit, um, for all its great merits and the great work that it does, uh, might be uh, one of the places that we choose to start. So I think there are lots of ways of scrutinizing legislation and we'd be very foolish to think that we've necessarily found the best one. Thank you. Thank you very much for many, many ideas uh, and thoughts. Um, you say we're in a political crisis. Uh, last week, Ignatieff gave, Michael Ignatieff gave a lecture in the LSE and uh, it was quite a heartening lecture, actually, because he uh, talked about democracy as uh, in democracy is crisis. So democracy is in a constant state of flux and debate and a constant state of um, argument between, in particular, politics uh, and law. And that this constant struggle, as he said, goes right back and was there back in... Uh, 1611 as it is today, so perhaps we shouldn't be uh, despairing about the current uh, political crisis. In a sense, it's a manifestation of democracy. Um, but what he said, which I, I thought was very interesting, is at what point do you tip over uh, into a state where democracy is at risk and threatened? Um, and he uh, considered that that point in time was when law was... Uh, broken or ignored uh, by the executive or defied. Um, and I would say that in the United Kingdom, we've got to the point not where the law has yet been defied by the executive, but where the executive is calling on the people, uh, in a sense, to legitimize a potential defiance of the law. And the, the furthest that the executive has gone is for both the Attorney General and the Prime Minister in Parliament uh, to say um, that the Supreme Court, they respect it, but it was wrong. Um, and as a lawyer, um, you might disagree with the Supreme Court, but it is always right. Uh, so there's a sort of call, uh, there's a contradiction in terms in some ways, but it, it, it's not as a lawyer because the, the, the Supreme Court speaks the law. Um, 
And I would say there were potentially another threat, um, which is the use of law by politicians uh, to threaten in a way that actually threatens democracy. And the example, perhaps, is the third Muslim ban, or the first Muslim ban, the second Muslim ban, and then the third one. The law was used in such a way that it achieved the objective, uh, but undermined an essential and core part of a liberal democracy. And that succeeded, and that is exactly what has been happening in Hungary under Orban uh, and in Poland. The law has been used, the constitution has been changed. Uh, those leaders can legitimately turn around and say, we have acted entirely lawfully. Uh, and yet we know uh, that the um, indeed explicit objective of Orban is to end liberal democracy and institute illiberal democracy, which is, uh, in my view, a clear contradiction uh, in terms. And Suzanne Baer, who's a judge on the German Constitutional Court, gave a fascinating talk a couple of years ago, organized by Jeff King, uh, which is really worth reading, about the necessity for the judiciary to develop uh, constitutionalism to deal with this particular threat of law being used by politicians to undermine uh, liberal democracy. Um, and I was fascinated by what you said earlier about, uh, if I may talk about an earlier discussion we had, you, you thought that if the equivalent of the Miller case, the prorogation case, happened in the States, you thought that the Supreme Court wouldn't necessarily have gone the same way as the um, Supreme Court here. Um, now, from my perspective, I saw the judgment in the prorogation case as actually essentially obvious. Uh, you know, if you ask, I ask my 14-year-old, what do you think about the PM closing parliament? And she says, well, why did he do it? And you say, well, he's got no reason to do it, which is what the court found. He hasn't got a reason. You say, well, then, of course, it's not okay. So I, I'd be interested if, to discuss this concept of the, the judiciary taking on a bigger constitutionalism role based, in a sense, on the philosophy of liberal democracy uh, <coughs> rather than the wording of um, the Constitution. Right. Well, I think that the, the way I think American courts increasingly are going to see it, see it is this. You ask the wrong question to your child because you didn't ask the question sitting as a judge, what should you have done? You're asking the question on the merits. Did Prime Minister Johnson's suspension, was it was it fake? Was it abuse of power, abuse of parliament? All those things was the rationale contrived. Um, and um, I think the, the problem that American courts are increasingly facing, and this is in part because our bench is more politicized than it was, the idea of having a unanimous judgment like the one you had last week in highly controversial cases is very, very hard for us to have it. It's very hard to ha for the, us to have it anymore. I mean, we did Brown versus Board of Education, 1954 was unanimous, but the modern day equivalent to that, the marriage equality case, Obergefell, that the Supreme Court decided four years ago was a five to four decision. And on marriage equality, it's, I think, a, it's a little easier. They're not like playing sides on the, putting their thumb on one side of the political scale or the other. But if a case like the, 
British one came, they would be. They would effectively be seen as picking sides. And so the Supreme Court last year, had our Supreme Court, had a gerrymandering case. We have partisan gerrymandering in our country. It's a horrible thing. Basically, our state legislatures draw the districts in all sorts of weird ways to try and benefit incumbents, benefit their own party. And we thought maybe the Supreme Court, or some people thought that the Supreme Court would intervene and say this is a violation of fundamental democratic principles, one person, one vote, that kind of stuff. Uh-uh. Supreme Court said it's a political question. We can't touch it. Um, and so that's the risk um, that I see. And just to react to a couple other things you said, uh, I, I, the gentleman from LSE who gave the, the speech about democracy is always, you know, intention and the like, I understand that point, but I do think we are in a fundamentally different threat in both your country and my country. Um, and I'm, uh, you know, America's leading in this. You're only following. America's leading in executive branch lawbreaking and all the stuff that you said, because this president, our president, has, you know, induced people to break the law. He said, go build the wall to his, uh, to his cabinet officials. And even though it's a violation of the law, I will pardon you. So don't worry about it. Just go ahead and do it. And there's time, example after example after example of that. You have not reached that state yet. Um, and you haven't reached that state yet, you know, or maybe you're, you're starting to. Um, and, you know, your point about the, the, the uh, good chaps view of, uh, you know, your, uh, of government, you don't need to have as much written down because... You've got a set of people who are from the center, you know, um, with perhaps, you know, historical reasons for trying to just do what's in the best interest of the country. That's breaking down in your country. It already broke down in ours. It broke down really two centuries ago, which is why the basis for us is a written constitution, because as James Madison said, if men were angels, no government would be needed. But precisely because it isn't, we need to have a written constitution and a set of rules. And so I think the question for you all is, yes, okay, you know, nor the Netherlands and the Nordic countries may not have the same written constitutionalism, but they may have a culture of good chaps or good chapettes. Um, and uh, and if you don't have that anymore in your country, might that force you into more of writing some of these guarantees down? But, I mean, going back to what, the 1850s, Tocqueville said there is scarcely a political question in the United States that does not sooner or later turn into a judicial one. Mm -hmm. And we've seen lots of examples of that in the 20th century. Um, you know, you think of the, the Supreme Court, which, as I understood it, you know, struck down significant elements of, of the New Deal. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned the, the activist court in relation to segregation, in relation to abortion. It, it interests me that the court seems to have felt able to be a political actor in those sorts of policy areas, uh, and yet would hold back from intervening uh, politically when it's looking at the respective powers of the other organs of the state, which one might think was a classic judicial function to set the rules for the other, for the legislature and the executive. You know, it's a brilliant point, and, uh, and that's why I start with those two examples that I started with. One where the court was intervening in Guantanamo on a massive issue. The other, the Muslim ban, where they were saying no. Both, there's DNA in our system for both of these traditions. The thing I'm increasingly worried about is that the courts are taking more of a step back, in part because, again, I think they're viewed as more politicized. In fact, in fact, our president is 
politicizing them, basically saying, I've got two judges that I nominated. They'll vote for me all the time and things like that. So I think he's furthered that erosion of norms to the point where I really think it would be impossible if a question like the one you had last week came to our Supreme Court, it would be decided unanimously. I just don't think that would be the case anymore um, in, in our system. And then once you have that weakened legitimacy from the judicial branch, it's harder for them to exert those kinds of influences. So, David, can I ask you, in relation to, again, the comparator between these systems, um, obviously you have uh, elected judiciary, very, very different from our system, uh, more, more elected. Well, the federal judges yeah. are appointed, yeah. Yeah. the state judges. Yeah, I just want to make sure that yeah. everyone understands. In the American system, at the federal level, which is the ju judges we've been talking about, the United States Supreme Court and stuff, they are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. You never run for elected office as a, ju a federal judge, even a trial judge. Sorry, my mistake. I'm, I meant that there, there's a sort of appointment system that gives it a kind of what people in this country are beginning to call a democratic legitimacy to the judiciary. And um, I don't know if you're aware of the Policy Exchange Judicial Power Project, mm. but it's a project that's been going on for about five years, uh, or five to seven years, that is um, very concerned about judicial power and uh, the ultimate objective is to follow along with the American system and, and since we've had the Supreme Court judgment many ministers have been mentioning that really there ought to be judges appointed by the Prime Minister subject to hearings uh, in Parliament um, and I wondered how that impacted on the, that kind of decision making. Would, would you like, uh, Baroness? Is it? Sorry, we need a, we actually need a mic I'm afraid because um, Could we give her this? This, this one here. Can I first of all say thank you very, very much indeed for two very, very stimulating contributions and of course your introduction and what you've been saying. I wanted to say that I agree with your analysis in terms of the written constitution, but I think some would argue that we have a written constitution, it's just that it's not codified, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. But my comment really, was really about the how judges are appointed because when you made the point that they would not have that judgment, I say that because I was in a, my past life the inaugural chairman of the Judicial Appointments Commission at the time the Supreme Court was set up as well. And I have begun to get a bit worried about, about this issue because we've had statements being enemies of the people. Mm -hmm. We've had statements in terms of having confirmation hearings, you know, that we yes. may get politicization in the way judges are selected. And I was just wondering whether there is a danger of that happening here, because if we, because although the, the decision of the, the Supreme Court, in my view, was about the unfettered use of discretionary power, and it's the kind of checks and balances we're talking about, but the way it's being interpreted is, is, is the judicial activism, and they're becoming you know, much more assertive in the way they are responding. So I just wanted a view from two of you, whether you have a view in terms of how the process of appointing judges will be impacted by the developments that Well, as, as I indicated, um, I do think that this case will be a precursor of um, more invitations to judges to intervene in, um, you could call them political areas such as this. We had similar predictions when the Human Rights Act came in in, in 2000, and we started seeing courts in this country having to come to 
decisions about whether something was or was not a necessary and proportionate intrusion into a fundamental human right. I mean, my own view of how the courts have handled that jurisdiction is that they've done it with restraint and enormous skill. Mm. And it's actually very difficult to think of um, decisions of our courts on matters of human rights, or indeed of even constitutional law. I think this one had something like 70% approval ratings that have really outraged people in the country. But I do think uh, we are probably at one extreme in terms of how we choose our judges. Um, we have a tradition of, of really um, appointing vestal virgins. Uh, you know, they're people like Jessica and me, uh, perhaps even more so. You know, they've spent their life in the law, uh, pleading, practicing before the courts in the rather austere uh, way in which we, we do it in this country and the unshowy way in which we do it in this country. They've been selected ultimately by other people in the know uh, for their exceptionally good uh, qualities and particularly their intellectual qualities, and they have served as well. But as the courts do uh, pronounce on more matters that the public recognise as important, I do wonder whether, in fact, um, some uh, amendment to those arrangements may have to be made. And one only has to look at other countries in Europe. I don't say this is superior, but I think you know we have Jan here, who knows the situation in Germany, but the Bundesverfassungsgericht, the German Federal Constitutional Court, I think there's a fair element of, of quite overt political input in the way that those judges are selected. The political parties have their own nominees. I think that the Chancellery has their own nominees. In France, in the Conseil d'État, the judges of the Conseil d'État still uh, advise the government at the same time as acting as judges under the principle of brassage introduced by de Gaulle mm. to make sure they didn't get too independent. Um, uh, we used to have judges sitting in the House of Lords doing the sort of thing that you and I do, uh, sitting on committees and, and even watching the passage of legislation, and that has gone. So in a way, our judiciary has become even more virginal than it was, even less known uh, to the outside world. And I don't think that some measure of appropriate parliamentary scrutiny need become the circus that we see in the Senate confirmation hearings in the US, because I don't think that's really our way. You know, plenty of other um, public officials or, you know, when I became the, the government's independent terrorism legislation reviewer, I was put through my paces in front of a couple of committees of parliament and I, I, I think that was right and proper. They needed to see if I was a proper person for the job or if I'd been appointed for, for, the, for the wrong reasons. Um, the Lord Chief Justice now regularly gives uh, evidence to parliamentary committees and people don't grandstand or take uh, a partisan position. So if, a, if an appropriate group could be found, I myself, I wouldn't worry too much about that. In terms of um, people saying they disagree with the judgment, well, you know, all three of us have represented a lot of clients uh, over the years. I don't remember too many of my clients agreeing with the judgment when we've <laughs> lost, uh, uh, nor are all of them um, polite enough not, not to voice that feeling. Now, I, I quite accept that the government has special responsibilities, and I think one, one of the difficulties we've seen recently is that um, uh, perhaps um, the executive has been seeing itself in in, in terms that are, that are too uh, partisan. But it seems to me all one can really uh, expect of them is that they will, first of all, comply unhesitatingly with the law, and secondly, they won't get into personal criticism or abuse of the judges. And uh, so far, uh, we haven't had cause to question that this government is going to do both those things. If I could maybe sound a cautionary note, um, given our confirmation process, um, I think some of you saw what happened in the Justice Kavanaugh confirmation process um, and uh, you know every one of these hearings has become in America some sort of spectacle and you know the first thing that happens when you have a politicized confirmation process is you tend to get judges the justices nominees who have done and written very little 
because if they don't have a paper trail, it's much easier to put them through. The most interesting, brilliant people can't go through a confirmation hearing because there is a, there is literally hundreds of millions of dollars that companies on one side or interest groups on the other side will spend to defeat a nominee and read every word they have written. And, um, you know, I know this firsthand because Justice Gorsuch, who was President Trump's first nominee, he was nominated 10 days after President Trump took office. Uh, I'm a liberal Democrat, but I went and I wrote an op-ed that day in the New York Times saying he should be confirmed, and I formally introduced him at, our se at his Senate confirmation. And boy, the left went after me to the point where they're like, you can't work in this town again, and so on. And, um, and I approached it from the standpoint of kind of the way I think some of your nominating commission does, which is, is this person qualified for the job? Are they going to do a good job? Are they going to bring intellectual rigor? Are they going to vote on the basis of politics? Are they truly lawyers? And I thought he was truly a lawyer. I have watched your Supreme Court. I've had the benefit of it. And I have to say that I think your nominating commissions do a fabulous job at selecting people who are skilled in the art of the law, who aren't politicians first. And what I think's happened in America, unfortunately, is we get a little bit more of politicians first, or people who are quiet and say nothing until they get that judicial appointment to the Court of Appeals or whatever, and then they start you know, doing some pretty radical stuff in order to get noticed to be picked as a Supreme Court justice. And so, and the last point I'd make about this is, as I understand that your, you know, your time in Parliament, um, you had questions asked of you and they were polite and so on, and to be sure, that's right. But I also think, having landed here last Wednesday and watching the speech of your Prime Minister, um, I don't think we can judge the future by what's happened in the past. I think we are in a new era, and I'd be very cautionary about confirmation hearings in this climate. Of course, judges or potential judges who want to be appointed to the European Court of Human Rights do undergo a, a form of parliamentary scrutiny. Jessica, you might want to say a word about that. Well, we had a very... Um, I was a UK nominee, one of the three UK nominees for the United Kingdom judge in Strasbourg. Um, we had a, a, a very rigorous process within the UK uh, with a very big, I had a very big panel interviewing me. But then I had to go to the a panel from the Parliamentary Assembly, but I have to say it was a fairly shambolic affair in the sense that when I arrived, a couple of people who were on the panel were leaving and then a couple of other people joined and I had people from, I don't know, there were how many countries now, 47, 47 in the Council yeah. of Europe? So all, uh, right across the room, all asking me questions in uh, arbitrary, it, it was a bit strange. I'm not sure that actually that interview process fed into the final election process by, by the Parliamentary Assembly. Yeah, um, but I think, I think the, the basic point for me um, entirely accept what you say about the Judicial Appointments Commission. It would be better, in fact, wouldn't it be great if that work was better known generally? But it seems to me that the more prominent our senior judges become in national life, the more vulnerable they are 
to the accusation that they are um, remote from the people, mm -hmm. they're accountable to nobody, they have no legitimacy. So if <laughs> some system could be devised, and maybe the best thing is to build on what we have, uh, that ensures they do have that legitimacy in the public eye, then I think that would be a good thing. How about a referendum? For <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> so, um, no. David, just, just on yes. that, I'm probably not supposed to have a view since I'm chairing, but um, mm -hmm. I, I would very much agree with your... Uh, comments on that. I, I think that we shouldn't, we should realize that there is a political project to get uh, either elected judges or judges appointed by elected representatives on the, and, and the argument for it is so-called legitimacy. And the kind of language that was used, not just in Miller II, but after Miller I, was these undemocratic, unelected, undemocratic judges. And Ian Duncan Smith said it over and over again on the television, Daily Mail, all the rest of it. And I think we have to face that absolutely head on and say that electing people is not what democracy is about. Democracy is a complex set of systems. And we have to have the legislature, the executive, the judiciary, and the media. And if we don't have those four independent institutions, we do not have democracy. Um, and so for me, I, I, I think we have to really push back against the continual linkage between democracy and a vote, because that's not it. And people need to understand that that's not it. And if I could just make one more quick point, in America, even though we do have presidential appointment, Senate confirmation, all of the rhetoric and indeed the legal scholarship, whenever uh, judgment like Roe versus Wade or marriage equality or Brown versus Board of Education, anytime the Supreme Court intervenes and strikes down something as unconstitutional, it's labeled undemocratic, unrepresentative, <laughs> etc. Yeah. So if you think that yeah. this is going to solve yeah. your problem of having yeah. Um, of having a confirmation process um, or something like that. It's not. Because ultimately, the problem, the democratic problem, and it's a real democratic problem, and you know, in, in, in America, Alexander Bickel wrote our most, uh, our, our most uh, cherished work on this in 1963 called The Least Dangerous Branch. The problem is the parliament or the Congress always has more electoral legitimacy than judges will, just because judges will never have gone through the same elections process that, uh, that, that the parliament or that other uh, Congress has. So can I, we, we're going to run over, is that all right, Jan, that we run over five <coughs> or 10 minutes? I'm going to open up a, a bit wider. If, would anyone like to um, ask a question, make a comment? If so, we, you need a microphone. It'd be nice if you'd tell us who you are. Uh, can we have a mic? Um, I'm Alex. I'm not a legal expert, unfortunately. I'm one of the scholars of Cumberland Lodge. Um, but something that fascinated me around the conversation of kind of good chaps and the presumption that actually people won't won't do the things that they possibly could because it's not really the right thing to do. And now, kind of political debate has become increasingly polarised. Perhaps our good chaps have turned a little bit naughty. I was I was wondering what a written constitution or codification of an existing constitution would do to, to allay that at all? Kind of what would codifying or you know, writing the constitution allow legal bodies to do that would act toward remedying some of the things that we're seeing at the moment? Well, I mean, what you see in some other constitutions in countries that admit referendums uh, are some 
rules on when a referendum can be held and whether there has to be a double referendum, whether there should be a supermajority, um, et cetera, et cetera. That's one example. And another, we mentioned proroguing parliament. You know, you could set out in black and white when it is that a parliament could be suspended. And, and I, I would see merit in that. Uh, I was just trying to sound the warning that um, a constitution does not mean certainty, otherwise there wouldn't be constitutional mm. lawyers in the, in the United States. Um, and uh, we mustn't project onto a constitution things that are, that, that, that are unrealistic. Anyone? Do you want to? Do you have any gentlemen? Thank you. Um, I find myself in the awkward position of agreeing with almost everything that has been said this evening, but at the same time looking at the banner above you saying defending democracy, and I'm just wondering what some other people listening to this debate might say along the lines of where's the demos? Mm. Well, uh, we are lawyers, and so for us the law is important and institutional constitutional arrangements are important, and we would like to think that uh, the success or otherwise of a country is determined in part by the arrangements that are, uh, that are set in place. Uh, but I can quite see that there are some things you know, even more basic and even more essential than those arrangements if you want to be a successful country. And one of them is feeling some sort of belonging, some sort of responsibility uh, towards each other and to the unit or the nation in which we uh, choose to live. And when we're looking at you know, why things seem to have got a bit difficult in both our countries, again, as lawyers, we're looking at, well, should we write the Constitution down? You know, is it right that the power of pardon should exist in the form that it does? You know, one could take a different line. One could, one could trace it back, for example, to the crash of 2008 and the relative uh, the impoverishment or the or the failure to grow the economy in both our countries so that vast swathes of the population you know have not seen increased living standards have seen certainly on this side of the atlantic cuts in public services and so on and the discontent you know that may have may have flowed from that and um, not from the types of things that we're uh, we're, we're talking about so certainly a you know a government of laws is is, is necessary but it certainly isn't the only thing you need uh, to have a to have a happy and successful country, and I suppose you know one reason so many people felt we should leave the EU. I know it wasn't just about the EU, but I think, and I would have to admit, as someone who spent his whole life working in European institutions, pleading before the European Court, I would have to accept that the notion of a European demos even now doesn't really exist. Mm -hmm. It exists in Brussels, in Luxembourg, in nice places like the European University Institute in Florence. It exists among people like Jessica and me who've traveled widely around the continent and perhaps our children who take to this more readily than, than we do. But, but it, it, didn't, it didn't altogether take in, in 47 years. And, I, and I, I think one has to be honest and accept that, uh, that that vote had something to do with the fact that we do not have a perfectly achieved demos in Europe. Indeed, if it wasn't for the Brits, basically uniting the others on the subject of Brexit, you know, I think we would be more conscious than perhaps we are on this island of the very deep divisions within the EU27 that I'm sure we're going to see more of in the years ahead. I agree that uh, part of Demos is belonging, and I, I think that, that, you know, that is increasingly under assault and being pried apart by uh, both social media, by state actors like Russia that are trying to do that. But I think another part of demos that we're going to be seeing much more of is transparency. Um, the idea that our government is doing stuff 
in secret that is wrong or corrupt or benefits elites or whatever the, the theory may be and push for much more openness in government um, as a result. And, you know, I'm a big fan in general of transparency, but I also recognize having been in two different administrations that um, governments need sometimes to do things quietly and secretly and, um, uh, and that there are going to be some very serious second order costs to this force of transparency. Okay, I'm a historian, not a lawyer, but I'm very interested in the question of the written versus the unwritten constitution. And as a historian, for the unwritten constitution, the best part of it is, is its adaptability and the way that we can interpret it. And I wanted also to ask you about the question of originalism in the United States and the way that the Constitution there is interpreted, particularly in the light of things like the First and Second Amendment, freedom of the press, the right to bear arms, um, cruel and unusual punishment. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of, about the extent to which history is used to interpret yeah. when, you talk, when you go back to <coughs> originalism, whereas we turn it round and so I suppose I'm more on the side of a more fluid, historically adaptable, but I'm willing to be persuaded. <laughs> well, um, you know, first of all, you can have a written constitution that is adaptable. You use the Eighth Amendment, our Eighth Amendment says cruel and unusual punishment. Unusual is by reference to today's standards. Every justice on our Supreme Court, even the most originalist of them will say that. They'll say you have to look around now not at what happened in 17, well, maybe Justice Thomas disagrees, but the others will say it's not 1787, it's today's values, due process. You know, what is due process? Well, that is some, what is due to you. Well, it's not due in 1787, that's a really weird way of thinking about it. It's really what is due today. Now, there are other parts of the Constitution that are more fixed, so you have to be president at 30, you have to be 35 years old to be president. Um, you know, there is an argument that 35 and 1787 is equivalent, you know, 50 is <laughs> the new 35 or something like that, but that's got a, that's just generally got a very fixed meaning and those arguments are pretty silly. So you're right, I think some writing down does create some fixed um, positions, but there's also a benefit to that, particularly if you do enact the Constitution in a constitutional moment. And this actually goes back a little bit to the belonging point. That is when, you know, we think about our great constitutional moments, 1787, 1865, 1937. These are moments at which the country has elevated politics. Um, there really, there's a broader consensus, uh, not just one electoral blip in one election, but really something more sustained in saying, we actually have to fundamentally transform our government. Um, and when you have that kind of consensus, you can have stuff enshrined in to the document like equal protection of the law as it was in 1866. Um, and yeah, nobody thought in 1866 that would mean protecting gay individuals or maybe even the desegregation of our schools on the basis of race or gender discrimination. But our judges have adapted those texts 
to meet and to meet those and it's easier to do when you have commitment on a broad basis to a big principle as we did in those moments of time. So I'd definitely be against any sort of constitution that was enacted in the time of just ordinary politics just like your referenda or like some election. I think that's a disaster um, because you don't have the kind of buy-in and belonging that you do from the people. So we, we perhaps would go back to 1688. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, I forget which American judge, possibly with tongue in cheek, described uh, cons the Constitution as a device to impede modernity. But um, <laughs> there, is, there is that risk. If you write everything down, you end up people saying, well, that's how it, should, how it should always be. And maybe that's why constitutions only last 17 years. But on the other hand, I mean, our judges, I feel for them. I think they did an amazing job last week. I, I don't know how Brenda Hale got them to be unanimous. I mean, even for us, that was pretty surprising. A lot of people who really know their constitutional law were saying, well, from the body language, it was 6-5. You know, <laughs> and they turned out to be wrong. But I mean, they, they were in a, in a way on a bit of a high wire act. They were, they were taking the principle of parliamentary sovereignty, the principle of parliamentary accountability. They were tracing these back through various judgments for hundreds of years to give them the, the, uh, the aura of, of tradition and authority. But it's a hard thing for them to do. And without the immense respect that the judges in this country are held in, um, the, 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 high wire, the high wire could break. And it seems to me there is some advantage in at least setting out the basic rules by common consent in a form that uh, they can be generally uh, un understood. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, tidy-minded person though I am, I, I can't pretend I think that the time for that is now. And I think on that we're, we're both agreed. So I have a theory that um, Lady Hale, they all went into the room at the end of the hearing and Lady Hale said, I don't care what we decide, but it's going mm. to be unanimous. <laughs> <laughs> and then they started <laughs> discussing. <laughs> so I think we've, uh, do we have, not really, I'm, a, I'm terribly sorry. We're, um, so just to, to wrap this up, I'm just wondering whether the referendum may be the moment that divided us and that maybe a drafting of the Constitution could be the way to bring us back together again. Mm. Um, Good luck. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> thank yeah. you all very much, thank and you. thank you very much thank to um, David and Neil for, for coming. Thank you. <laughs>